If you're not already there, open to Genesis chapter 21. Let's read again verses 22 through 34. I'll just make a couple comments here. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. Abraham has a good reputation with outsiders, which is important. And God calls us as believers in him to have good reputations as far as we can with outsiders. And here you have a man, Abraham's neighbor now, who does not love God, who does not trust God, but can see that Abraham knows God and loves God and trusts God and can see that God loves Abraham. So he wants to be on Abraham's good side. This is a man whom you want to be on his good side because he is on God's good side. This is the thinking in Abimelech's mind. So he wants things to be good between he and Abraham because he can see it is evident that God is with him in all that he does. And I wonder if it's evident to others that God is with us in all that we do. I wonder if even people who do not love and know and trust God see that we love and know and trust God and that God loves us. I wonder if people would say of us that they can see that God is with us in all that we do. Because it changes how people relate to you and speak to you and connect with you. And it changes what people want to hear from you and know from you. It gets people to a point where they want to know the reason for the hope that you have, maybe. And so this is what Abimelech is trying to work out with Abraham. Abraham is open to it, but there's a dispute that they need to work out first. There's a dispute that they have before any agreement can be made between them over a well. And once resolved, Abraham is is willing to make this agreement. But first, square this away. Verse 25, when Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart and Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Verse 33. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. So once the dispute is resolved between Abraham and Abimelech, Abraham settles in for what he hopes will be a quiet season in his life. Abraham has not had much rest. He has not had a a, a season of peace. He's been through quite a bit up until this point. The big trial was the faith that was necessary to believe that God was going to bring him this promised son for decades with no sign that that promise was actually going to be fulfilled. So Abraham's struggling and his wife's struggling. But now we know that they have been given the son. God's promise has been fulfilled. They have high expectations because all of God's promises are going to be fulfilled through this promise of the son. So he's here. And so it tells us that what Abraham does is once this is resolved and he he settles in for quite a while here in the land of the Philistines, he worships God. He calls on the name of the Lord and he plants a tree. Now you plant a tree when you plan to be somewhere for a while. Some of you move into a place and you know you're only going to be there six months, a year, maybe two years. You probably don't plant a tree. Okay, when do you plant a tree? You plant a tree when you plan to care for and nurture that tree. And one day my kids are going to climb in this tree. Okay, we're going to look at this tree. We're going to hang Christmas lights in this tree. 
He's going to be here a while. The tree is a sign uh, in Abraham and Sarah and his family's life of rest and stability. Hey, we've been through a lot. This has been a long time coming. You know, there's one last dispute. It's resolved. We're in this great and beautiful land. We're settling down. We're planting a tree. So he sits on the porch swing with Sarah. Right? They share a bowl of ice cream. That's what me and my wife would do. Maybe it's coffee. Maybe it's tea. They share a bowl of ice cream and they watch the sun set. And they're thankful for the rest and the stability that God has brought. They're thankful for His provision and His peace. Okay, this is a literary technique here. Because there is a sharp contrast now between this peace and what we find God calling Abraham to do in chapter 22. He's not through it. He's not through it. So let's pray. And then we'll work through chapter 22, verses 1 through 12. Father in heaven, help us today to to understand the faith of Abraham. As his faith will be proven to us today. I'm going to read about it, hear about it, and see it. Help us to remember that it was you who gave him faith. A precious gift from you. That you gave him and you give us the measure of faith that we need. As you say in Romans chapter 12. What great faith you poured out on Abraham. And what great response he offered to you. So God, as we read about Abraham's faith, we we want to imitate our father's faith. God, give us this faith. May we be men and women and children who are willing to give up everything for you. Who hold everything in this world in very loose hands and, and hold you alone in a very tight hand. In a tight grasp. Would you, would you make us those kinds of children who, who love their Heavenly Father so much and are devoted to their Heavenly Father so significantly that in a way you become our only treasure in this universe. And if everything else goes and everything else fails, we're, we're good. We're okay because we've got you and And you will never leave us. And your love stands firm through all our life. Would you give us this kind of faith, God? We're not going to muster this from somewhere within ourselves. Oh, we need you, Lord. And God, we know that these other things that we hold so dearly, These things that we love, these good things that we love, these good things that we hold dearly. We know that we are more likely to keep them the more willing we are to give them up. So give us a willingness to give up anything and everything for you, God. And in that, to prove our faith. But more significantly, to prove the glory of a God our faith is in. So please do this through the preaching of your word in this book today. We pray these things confidently and in the name of your precious Son, your only Son, whom you love, Jesus. Amen. Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. After these things, of which we just read about, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. Here am I. We'll read this three different times in just these 12 verses. In this short span, Abraham's going to say, here am I, three different times. 
It's a phrase that we see other people say who love God in the Bible. Okay, Abraham says it here. His son Isaac, we're going to read about Isaac later in his life saying it. Uh, Jacob says it. Moses says it. Samuel says it. One of the most famous quotes is in Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah says, Here am I, here I am. Same exact phrase. This is what it implies. When, when, when God's people respond to uh, God this way, it implies a, a close relationship and a willingness to listen and respond. That's what this is. It implies a close relationship and a willingness to listen and respond. Abraham, here I am. Okay, you hear the, the words and you hear the tone and you see the you see it expressed bodily. Okay, here I am. Whatever you want, whatever you need, I am here for you. Close relationship, and I'm willing to listen and willing to respond. You know the difference just when you call out to someone in responses. There's a way that someone can respond to you when you call out to them that implies that they don't have a willingness to listen to you or respond. When they say, what? (laughs) Abraham does not do this. Abraham, what? What does that imply? Can't you see I'm busy? Can't you see I'm in the middle of something? Okay, your, your children can call out to you. Parents, you can call out to your children. And parents and children do this all the time. Is their response to one another, here am I? It implies a close relationship and a willingness to listen or understand. Your children call out to you and you say, what? Do you call out to your children and they say, what? Or is there, in word and in tone, okay, in body language, is it implicit that I want to listen, I want to understand, and I want to respond? These aren't just words. This is the way that Abraham is responding to God when God calls out to him. And we, we learn in verse 1, uh, the framework that we should have when we're reading the rest of this text because it tells us what God is up to. It tells us what God is up to. After these things, God tested Abraham. So we should understand what this means. God is going to test Abraham. There's a difference between test and tempt. It would be good for us to understand the difference. There's a difference between testing and tempting in your Bible, but they'll they'll look very similar because circumstances will will befall somebody. A trial will befall somebody and it, it can either be looked at as a test or as a temptation. Okay, God tests people and Satan tempts people. Okay, so the good God tests people and the dragon tempts people. People. In fact, God never tempts people. Some some of you will say God is tempting me right now, or or I remember the seat and God was tempting me. But that's not true. God never tempts anybody. Uh, God is not even capable of tempting someone. This is what James says in chapter one, verse thirteen. Some of you are familiar with this verse. There's a command here. Let no one say when he is being tempted, I am being tempted by God. James says, don't do that. You may be being tempted, but don't say that God is tempting you. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Okay, God cannot be tempted with evil. He cannot tempt anyone. And the reason is because when you are being tempted, think of it this way. You are being lured into sin. Okay, so something wicked, evil, sinful is being dangled in front of you, right? This was Jesus when he was tempted by Satan. And so you're being lured into sin. Well, what does God have that he could use to lure you into sin? God is light and in him there is no darkness. So God is not wicked. God is not evil. There's no evil in him that he can dangle out in front of you to tempt you into doing something that is not good. 
So it's important that we understand that God tempts no one, which is why when Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6, we're actually praying to God to deliver us from temptation and evil. Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. So temptation is not something that that God does. Testing is different. Divine tests are to strengthen our faith. Demonic temptations are built to destroy our faith. You see, totally different motives, totally different intentions. So God tests what's happening here. This is a divine test. So Abraham's being tested. You will be tested. You have been tested. Divine tests are built by God to strengthen, to strengthen his people. Demonic temptations are built by the dragon to destroy our faith. Big difference. Now, practically, the way this looks in your life is is, is like this. You are being tested when obedience is difficult. Is obedience going to be difficult for Abraham? There isn't a, a greater story in your Bible of difficult obedience. There isn't. This is it. What we're reading today. You are tested like Abraham was tested. Anytime obedience is is difficult. So when it's difficult, will we do good? When it's difficult, will we love God? When it's difficult, will we stand for what we say we believe? Will, Will you obey him? Will you choose him? So you say that you have faith. Will your faith be proven true or false? That's what a test is. It happens all the time. Big, small testing. We all say, if we're Christians, we say, we love you, God. We're devoted to you, God. And then tests come to strengthen our faith. We say we have faith, but now is our faith in this test, is it going to be proven to be false or true? Right. I give I give my boys all kinds of instructions and some of them are easy for them to follow and some of them are more difficult for them to follow. And when they're difficult for them to follow, it's a test, isn't it? Do you really love me? Do you really trust that dad knows best? Do you really trust that dad loves you? Are you going to do this thing that you don't want to do because your dad says it's best for you? But there's other instructions I give them. It's not a problem. We'll go home this afternoon. And I may look at them and say, swim. <laughs> now. No back chat. No back chat. No arguing. No, no struggle there. Yes, Father. Yes, Father. As your wish is our command. Oh, to bring you honor, Father, is, is our greatest and deepest desire. And so we shall swim, Father. We shall swim. Boys, clean your room. Oh, now something's being tested. Now something's being tested. Yes, Father. Your will is our greatest desire. To clean our room would be... Now it's tested, right? Now we're more likely to... Uh, uh, you'd think I asked them something just terrible. Terrible, right? So what's happening? Obedience is more difficult. Now there's an opportunity for them. There's an opportunity for them to prove to prove their, their love for their father and their commitment to their father and their devotion to their father. There's an opportunity for them to prove that in that moment. And this is what God does when he tests us. They are opportunities to prove our faith true or false. Like 2 Corinthians 8.8. Paul says to the church in Corinth, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. Remember, Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he says, listen, I want you to get your money together and I want you to give it to the Christians who are in need. And we'll come by and we'll collect it and we'll take it. And then he gives them the example of the Macedonians. Right. And so what he's the the Macedonians who are poor, but they're giving things up to help those who are being persecuted. So he says, listen, this is what I'm doing when I tell you to give money. I'm giving you an opportunity. It's a test. What is it a test for? To prove that you really do love the church. It's going to prove it is you say you love the church, 
But now there's a test, a crucible, and it's either going to prove it true or false. Or 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, examine yourselves to see whether or not you are in the faith. What is the next phrase? Test yourselves. Test yourselves. So what are we, what are we doing? Okay, when the rubber reaches the road, will I obey God? Do I really love God? I sing the songs. Do I mean the songs? I've got myself pulled together on Sunday. Do I have myself pulled together the rest of the week? I'm devoted sporadically. Am I devoted consistently? So tests come as opportunities to prove whether or not our faith really is true. And James 1.12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Will Abraham remain steadfast under trial and thus prove his faith? He will. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. So when we read the rest of Genesis chapter 22, we all are going to see whether or not Abraham has genuine faith. This is where it gets proven to us. Our father, our great father of faith. Does he have genuine faith? And in Genesis 22, we see. Sarah will find out. Isaac will find out. The servants who are with him will find out. The Israelites who are reading this account will find out. The church will find out. We will find out whether or not Abraham's faith is genuine based on how he responds to the test. Think of it this way. I want to say something so that we don't begin to think that we're justified by what we do. Because we're justified by faith, and then what's the next word? Alone. Okay, and this is true. We are saved, we are justified by faith alone, but not a faith that is alone. Not a faith that is alone. We are saved by faith alone. But that faith that we are saved by is a working faith. This is the point that James is making. So saving faith is working faith. It's not just, yes, I love you, God. I believe in you, God. I trust you, God. I said the sinner's prayer. I was baptized. I've made a profession of faith. That must be proven genuine. It's not just words. It has to be uh, uh, active faith, living faith. James says, otherwise, it's dead faith. In other words, it's not saving faith. It's not really faith. Real faith is not just words. So the kind of faith that, that we must have in order to be saved, okay, the kind of faith that leads to salvation is faith that obeys God no matter what. So we just we've got to make that qualifier. Yes, you are saved by faith alone. But look in this story. It's not faith that is alone. It is a working, God believing, promise believing, devoted faith that leads to deeds that leads to works. This is James point in chapter two, verse 17. Remember what James says. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So you say, I'm saved because my faith is in Jesus. And it is perfectly acceptable for us to say to one another, show me. Show me. If your faith is real, it will be evidenced. It will be proven by whether or not you obey God when the tests come. James says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? You know what he's saying? 
Do you want to be shown that faith without works is useless? Then die with a faith that has no works. And you will be shown that it is useless because you will be eternally alienated from God. He said, is that what you want? He's saying words are not enough. Abraham, your words are not enough. It's got to be proven here. And then James refers to the text we're reading today. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. So this is what we're saying as we read the story of Abraham. Within real faith is built in willingness to do whatever God commands. So you have faith within real faith built into real faith is a willingness to do whatever God says. Now, that kind of faith is not proven until it's what? Tested. And so what does God do with Abraham? He gives him a test. And he will be tested now. Verse 2. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And this is God's test for Abraham. God has asked Abraham to do a lot of things before. But God has never asked Abraham to do anything like this. There's no misunderstanding God here. God was communicating to Abraham as a prophet. Not like God communicating to us through His Word, but God communicating directly with His audible voice to Abraham. And this is what God clearly asks him to do. Unimaginable. Unimaginable for us. Unimaginable for Abraham. God looks at him and says, take your boy, your only boy, whom you love. Take him to this mount at Moriah. I'll show you where to go. And offer your son up. Offer him up as a burnt sacrifice. A burnt offering. This is the test that God is going to require of Abraham. And Abraham is either going to prove that his faith is legit and real and true. Or he's going to prove that there's really no faith at all. Now to understand what God is asking Abraham to do. God is not just asking Abraham to kill his son. God is asking Abraham to offer Isaac up as a burnt offering. Offer him there as a burnt offering. Isaac is probably between 17 and 25 years old right now. So the whole time I'm reading this text this week, I'm thinking of my firstborn son, Peyton. Trying to understand what Abraham was going through and trying to understand what Abraham was feeling. When God came to him and says, offer your son as a burnt offering. This is what God was asking Abraham to do. Abraham was being asked to build an altar to bind his son to kill him to dismember him and burn him up. This is what God requires of Abraham. I want you to take your son I want you to build an altar to me. I want you to lay your son down. I want you to tie him to that altar. 
I want you to kill him. And then I want you to cut his body into pieces as you would a burnt offering. And I want you to set him on fire. The only offering God requires that is totally consumed is the burnt offering. I want your son to be totally consumed. This is what God asks Abraham to do. Listen to the words that God uses as he calls Abraham to do this. He doesn't say, take your son Isaac and offer him up as a burnt offering. Do you, you see how God talks to Abraham? Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. This feels like God is twisting the knife, doesn't it? Take your son, your only son. Whom you love and offer him as a burnt offering. Listen, God wants Abraham to know that he knows exactly what he's asking Abraham to do. Listen, Abraham, I know this is your son, your only son. You've been waiting for him your whole life. Your only son whom you love God is saying, I I understand the gravity of this and I'm not taking this lightly. But this is what I want you to do. Take that boy and offer him up as a burnt sacrifice. Now, there's a point here. In Abraham's mind. Remember all that God has told Abraham and all that God has promised Abraham in Abraham's mind. He is not only being asked to sacrifice his son, he is being asked to sacrifice God's promise. Right? He's not only being asked to sacrifice his son, he's being asked to sacrifice God's promise because Isaac is the son of the promise, we've been told. Isaac is the son of the promise. God promised to Abraham and Sarah, God promised to Isaac's mom and dad some 40, over 40 years ago. God promised to them that they would have a son. And he promised blessing and land and offspring and one offspring in particular who would slay the dragon and save God's people. So Isaac embodies the promises of God, right? God promised the son, but then God made all these other promises that were to come true through the son. I'm going to give you a son and through the son, I'm going to bless you and bless all nations. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give him offspring and one particular offspring that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter three, who is going to crush the head of your great enemy, Satan, the dragon. That's why they celebrated and had a feast when they knew that Isaac was going to live because he was the promised seed. And he would one day bring about the promised capital S seed who would free God's people from the enemy. So when God says, kill your son, Abraham in his mind is not just being asked to kill his son. He's being asked to kill the promise. Because the promises are to be fulfilled in Isaac. So how can Isaac die before he has any children? Is what Abraham's going to think about. How can God ask Abraham to kill him? God, your wills are contradicting one another. Have you ever felt that? God, what you say and what you're doing look contradictory to me. You've promised to provide for me and supply all my needs, but if I do this, which clearly would seem I need to do, clearly my needs are not going to be met. And this will happen in the Christian's life where... Things will seem contradictory at times. At times, obedience will not make sense. Obedience does not always make sense. It's not always reasonable. 
Obedience to God will often be foolish in the world's eyes. It may even appear at times that God is working against his own promises. So that's a test. So what are you going to do, Christian? Are you going to lean on your own understanding? Or are you in all your ways going to trust him and acknowledge him? How will you respond to that test? For Abraham, this makes no sense. So if you want to put yourself in Abraham's shoes, really, it's not. Well, how would I respond if I was being asked to give up my son? It's how would I respond if I was being asked to give up eternity in heaven? Because Abraham's salvation and his eternity with God is bound up in these promises that are to come true through this child whom he's being asked to kill. Will he give all of this up to obey God? This is a test. Has Abraham learned to trust God no matter what or not? Will he be given the measure of faith necessary as Romans 12, 3 talks about? Will he be given the measure of faith necessary that is about to be proven to all of those who are watching? So what is happening is Abraham is being put on stage before the universe. Abraham is being put on stage before the universe. And either his faith will be proven false or it will be proven true. Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. He rose early in the morning. Some of you struggle to get up early to read your Bible. Abraham rises early to kill his son in obedience to God. And we can't get out of bed early. It's too hard to get out of bed early to read the Bible. This is prompt obedience. If there was a morning to belabor the day, if there was a morning to delay the day, if there was a morning to sleep in, this is it for Abraham. And yet he rises early in the morning before the sun is up and he's got his face set on obeying God no matter what. Prompt obedience. And what did he do? He rose up early, it says, and he's going to head out. He went to the place of which God had told him. Now, where is that? Verse 1 told us that, that God has said, go to the land of Moriah. Go to the land of Moriah. In 2 Chronicles 3.1, we learn that that's where the temple of God was built. The temple of God was built where Abraham is being called to go to sacrifice his son. The temple where future sacrifices would be made, which is also in the region of Golgotha where the ultimate sacrifice will be made. This is a place of sacrifice that Abraham is being called to go to. He doesn't know this, but we now know this. We also know that this is about 45 miles from where Abraham is. Which means this is a three-day journey. You could maybe do it in two days by foot, and then the third day would be set for preparing for your offering, which is probably what happens. But as we're going to see, three days. In other words, this will not be something that Abraham can push through quickly and get over with. You ever had something very difficult you need to do? And finally, you just decide to push through it. I mean, nothing on the scale of what Abraham is set to go through. But you've had more difficult things that you've just had to just grit your teeth and push through. And you actually wanted to push through it and get it over with because it was so difficult. Abraham does not have that luxury. I mean, what is God doing here? God sets him on a three-day journey. He has given much time to think. I don't know where you go when you think. But Abraham is given three days 
and he is given this immense time to think about what he's been called to do, about what's to take place. And the details are all put here. It's drawing this out for us. The preparation. Right? He's, he's saddling up his donkeys. Right? He's getting his servants to their horse. He's getting his son to his horse. The donkeys. He goes and cuts the wood. He cuts the wood after he gets Isaac set on his donkey. Maybe to, to hide or to keep what's happening from his son. We don't know. But it's the last thing he does before they leave. Probably the hardest thing he does before they leave is cut the wood. Because he knows why he's cutting wood. And he knows that that wood is going to be ignited. That that wood is going to be ignited to consume his son. And then this long walk. Walking together, just four of them on this long three-day journey. They're eating meals together. They're sleeping. Conversation. And all the while, Abraham and Abraham alone knows that at the end of this journey, he is to kill, dismember, and burn his only son whom he loves. James Boyce speculates, and I think he may be right, that Abraham was asking himself, how can God be faithful to his promise if I sacrifice Isaac? That would seem to be the most pressing question in his mind. And in ours, as we understand what Isaac represents. God, how are you going to work this out? You are contradicting yourself. You made you promised this boy and he's finally here and you promised all this blessing through him. And you've said that so clearly and now so clearly you've told me to kill him. So how is that possible? How can I sacrifice my son Isaac and you still stay faithful to your promises? You're a faithful God. How is this going to work out? Now, here's the thing to notice, though, as he's thinking about this and deliberating about this, surely on the way there, this is all post-decision deliberation. This isn't pre-decision deliberation. The difference being, he's not thinking this through and trying to come to an answer before he decides whether or not he's going to obey God. He decided, I'm going to obey God. And now he's trying to reason this out. And this is our example. If we understand God's word clearly and what he's calling us to do in his word, we are to act promptly and to obey him promptly. And the reason that can come on the back end of our obedience, but it should never come on the front end of our obedience. And too often it does. God, you've clearly said that this is what I need to do. But I'm just going to think about this. I'm going to meditate on this. Friends, there are things to meditate on and there are things to act upon. And when God's word is clear, we need not meditate. We need to act and be obedient. Because you and I both know that we'll deliberate a long, long time. I'm just praying about this. We've got language that we use that sounds spiritual when it's just which means I'm disobeying. How long have you been praying about this? Years. What we really are saying, I've been disobeying for years. But we spiritualize it. I'm just praying about that. Praying about that. What is unclear to you? There are things to deliberate on. There are things to meditate on. There are things to pray about. And there are things where our faith needs to be active. So Abraham has made the decision. His face is set. He's going to obey God. But now he's thinking about this. Now, it appears that he's answered this puzzle by the time they arrive. It appears that he's answered the puzzle by the time they arrive. Because listen to what happens. Verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. But then listen to verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now, some of your translations actually say, We are going to go and worship and then we will come back to you. And in the ESV, that is implicit. 
Abraham is saying that we are both going to go now and we're going to worship God. And then does he tell his servants, and then I am going to return to you? No. Abraham says, and then we will come back to you. We will come again to you. So what's gone on in Abraham's mind on this three-day journey? God, how will you keep your promises if I sacrifice my son Isaac? Well, Hebrews 11 tells us. Hebrews 11 tells us what has happened in the mind of Abraham. Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19 says this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. So he who had received his promises was in the act of offering up the promises. Verse 18 of Hebrews 11. Of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And then it tells us this. He, that's Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So what was Abraham's conclusion on the way to sacrificing his son Isaac? He was going to see a miracle. That was his conclusion. God's word does not contradict itself. God has clearly told me to do this. And God has clearly told me that he was going to do this. I cannot figure that out in my small, tiny, tiny, tiny little brain. So something out of this world, beyond my understanding, beyond my comprehension, is going to have to happen. So he's going to this banking on a miracle. I know this son has been promised to me, and I need him for these promises, so we're coming back to you after we worship. So I'm going to go kill my son, and we are coming back to you. He was certain of those two things, which of course made no sense. Conclusion? A miracle. And there's no precedence for resurrection here. We hear that. We're like, oh, yeah, God can raise people from the dead. Abraham didn't get that. He never saw that. He didn't understand that. But he knew that somehow, some way, he was going to kill his son and his son was going to go back home with him. Now, why? What's underneath all of that? He takes God's word for it. Faith. Faith. He believes God. He believes what God says. And he obeys God. Verse 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took his hand. He took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went both of them together. So Isaac carries the wood To the sacrifice. Another one will carry his own wood to the sacrifice. You read about him later. Isaac carries his own wood to the sacrifice. Abraham carries the fire and the knife. So he he kindles the fire. And then he gathers up the fire. And he has the knife. And they start heading for the place where Abraham is set to obey God. Verse 7. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here's those words again. Here am I, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Fathers, can you imagine your son asking you this question? And of all the things that, that, of all the words that Isaac could use to address his Abraham, what does he say? My father. My father. John Calvin says this is another instrument of torture from God on this man's soul. God is pressing Abraham to the brink, to the very brink. And what is Isaac asks 
pretty important question. Okay, I've got wood. You've got fire. You've got a knife. But what are we killing? What are we going to burn up? It's interesting when you look at the Hebrew. Isaac's question is exactly six words. Abraham's response is exactly six words. Abraham is thinking very carefully about what he says to his son when he when he responds in verse seven. The son begins his question with my father and the father ends his answer with my son. These are all clues to how close and and intimate and tender these moments are between the father and the son. Verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. This is just perfect to see the faith in Abraham. He says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So this is his faith, friends. His faith. Resting in the providence of God. This is what Abraham is doing. Okay, I have no idea how this is going to work out. I am banking on a miracle. But God has clearly said this. And God has clearly said this. Circumstances are, 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 are looking bleak. And I have no idea how God is going to resolve this. He has no idea. So what do you, what do you bank on when you're walking by faith And you have no idea how things are going to work out. How things are going to come together. It looks bleak. It looks terrible. It looks disastrous. Well, what does Abraham do? He rests in the providence of God. What does he say? God will provide. He doesn't speculate how God is going to provide. He just says, well, I know that God will provide. He's resting in the sovereignty of God. The providence of God. God is in control here. God is ordering history. God has made promises. God is faithful. He will fulfill them. Son, I don't know how this is going to work out. But God will provide. We're tempted to speculate there, right? And sometimes we need to shut our mouths and not speculate. Say, listen, I don't know. I don't know. I've got no crystal ball. I'm not a seer. I'm not a prophet. I don't know how this is going to work out. But here's what we know. Stick to what we know. God will provide. For God is good. God is great. God will provide. John Calvin said in regards to Abraham with this, this philosophical knot that he's trying to untie. How is this going to work out? Said, But it is important to notice the manner in which he unties this inextricable knot, namely by taking refuge in divine providence. God will provide himself a lamb. This example is proposed for our imitation. Whenever the Lord gives a command, many things are perpetually occurring to enfeeble our purpose. Means fail, We are destitute of counsel. All avenues seem closed. In such straits, the only remedy against despondency is to leave the event to God in order that He may open a way for us where there is none. For as we act unjustly towards God when we hope for nothing from Him but what our senses can perceive, so we pay Him the highest honor when in affairs of perplexity we nevertheless entirely acquiesce in His providence. Faith. Taking God's word for it. I don't have the details. I'm not privy to the details. I can't imagine how this could work out. But God is faithful. And so it says at the verse, end of verse 8, so both of them went up together. So what is Isaac doing at this point? 
He's trusting his father. He's trusting his father. Throughout this story, what, what you see is Abraham trusting his heavenly father and Isaac trusting his earthly father. Isaac doesn't ask any questions. Well, that's a cop-out answer, Dad. Well, the, the Lord will provide. Well, what if he doesn't? This is how we respond. What if he doesn't? And what are we going to do about it? And what's your plan? And how is this going to work out? The Lord will provide. There's no, there's no rams up here. There's no sheep up here. I mean, it's a desolate place. There's nothing up here. This is really poor planning, Dad. I mean, here we are. Nothing from Isaac. Now, in a couple of verses, you're going to see just how much this son trusts his daddy. Verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Does Isaac trust his dad? Isaac trusts his dad. If he's old enough to carry 100 pounds of wood, he's old enough to wrestle a 120-year-old dad off of him. This isn't Abraham forcing his son into anything. This is a son trusting his earthly father. What kind of life do you suppose this daddy lived in front of his son? For his son to trust him like that. That question plagued me all week long. What kind of life did that daddy live in front of his son? So that his son trusted him enough to lay down on an altar while his daddy raised the knife above his chest. What kind of an example had Abraham been to this son? To where this son could trust his daddy that much. So Abraham binds his son. He ties up his son. I mean, he's thinking through, am I going to tie him loosely? Am I going to tie him tightly? I don't want to do this tightly. I don't want to hurt him. But if he struggles, this could be more painful. Whatever he's thinking, he's binding his son to this altar. Verse 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. So here's Abraham. He's, he's over his son. It doesn't just say that he's set to kill his son. He's set to slaughter his son. He knows what is necessary for the burnt offering. He doesn't know how he's going to do this, but he knows that he's got to do it. He has to obey God. And so here's Abraham probably straddling his son on this altar. His only son whom he loves. Raising the knife above his head. He's got to be sobbing. He's weeping. He's trying to see clearly. He doesn't want to miss. He wants to hear. He wants to hit him in the right place with the right amount of strength. He doesn't want his son to suffer. He wants this to end as quickly as it possibly can. These are the kinds of terrible thoughts that have to be going through this father's mind as he prepares to plunge a knife into his son's heart. But, verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here am I. Here am I. Happy willingness to listen and respond. Close relationship. 
Abraham, Abraham, exclamation point. This is serious. Stop. And he says, here am I. He cries out. What did the angel of the Lord say? Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withhold your son, your only son from me. Can you imagine this moment? This would be, in a moment, deepest sorrow turned to highest joy. Right? I mean, the deepest sorrow one second he has ever felt. And the highest joy the next second that he has ever, ever felt. This is how God works. You don't necessarily know when the joy of the Lord is coming, but when it comes, it hits hard. Some of you have experienced that. When it hits, it hits. But I don't think we have an example like this in all of Scripture where to this degree, I mean, deepest, deepest sorrow in one moment transformed to greatest possible, greatest possible joy. And the angel says... Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Our faith in God. Our faith in God is either proven or disproven by our response to his revealed will. Will we do what God tells us to do? Will we go where God tells us to go? Will we say what God tells us to say? Will we give up what God tells us to give up? James 2.22 You see that faith was active along with Abraham's works. And faith was completed by his works. Abraham here gives evidence of his love and devotion to God. How much does Abraham love and trust God? This much. This much. His faith is expressed because faith is not expressed by words. Your faith is expressed by deeds, by works, by choices, by decisions, by life. Primarily our faith is expressed. Let me close with this question. To whom most significantly did Abraham evidence his faith? Or on whom did this display of Abraham's faith have the most profound effect? I mean, it was displayed to many. It was evidence to many. But on whom did it have the most profound impact? It's a question to think about. This was proof before God. This was proof before God. The angel says, now I know. Not to say that God didn't already know. Remember. God is omniscient. God knows all things. As well, the faith that was required of Abraham to do this had to have been apportioned to him by God. So God knows Abraham's faith. God knows Abraham's devotion. But here it is evidenced through experience before God. This was also proof before the servants. The servants. Abraham and Isaac came back down. Certainly this story would have been told and has continued to be told throughout history. And so this became proof of well to Sarah, to Abraham's household, to the Israelites, to the church. But whom most significantly did Abraham evidence his faith? On whom did this display of Abraham's faith have the most profound effect? Who without omniscience is watching this unfold most closely? Isaac. Isaac. I believe that this is intended most profoundly to evidence faith before Isaac. The faith of Isaac's father on display before Isaac. In this story, Abraham trusts God. 
And Isaac trusts Abraham. And through this, Isaac learns to trust God. By faith evidenced in his father. Parents, especially fathers. How is your faith expressed to your children? Christian, how is your faith expressed to others? But especially and specifically, parents, how is your faith expressed to your children? Is your faith a matter of your mouth or a matter of your whole life before your kids? Do they see faith in such a way in you that they are being trained up in the way that they should go so that when they are older, they will not depart from it? Because they not only have heard of faith from mom and dad, but they have seen faith in mom and dad. Therefore, they have seen the glory of God in mom and dad. Let's pray. Great Father in heaven, we thank you for this time to look at your word and to hear from you. We pray that your Holy Spirit would affect our hearts and take your word deeper than it's already gone and stir our convictions, make us want to love you more and to please you more and to obey you more. Give us deeper understanding of how good you are, how worthy you are of our obedience and our affection of faith. Help us to see clearly today, God, your goodness, your greatness, your glory. And I pray that if there are people here this morning who do not have their faith in you, that they would now have their faith in you. That they would see you, that their eyes would be opened, that their ears would be opened. That they would, they would imagine how great God must be if Abraham was able to live like this and make decisions like this based on the goodness of God. Pray that it would just become obvious to people, obvious to them, how good you are, how wicked we are, and how in need of your mercy we are. So that people here today, Christians, not Christians, would turn to you and plead for your mercy. Because you're a good and just God, but one who is willing to extend mercy to the one who turns to you. So turn our hearts to you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.